Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. Hello, Jeff. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's always been a while, but it's always good to be back. This week, we have a guest. Uh, We've been very interested in covering the many photo editing apps available for Mac and for iOS. And was it just our last episode we talked about Luminar? Yes, it was. So this week, we have Andreas Gelunas, and I'm trying very hard to pronounce his name correctly because I'm a language guy. Um, Andreas, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hi. It's very, very great to be here. I'm I'm glad that you've invited me on. Andreas works for the Pixelmator team. Um, Pixelmator, Pixelmator Pro, Pixelmator Photo. There's a whole bunch of Pixelmator apps. Um, Pixelmator is an interesting alternative to other photo editing apps. And and we're going to talk about uh, the apps for Mac and for iOS. But I think on, on the Mac space, it's more interesting to look at its abilities. Um, how long has Pixelmator been around? Is it three, four, five years? Oh, much longer than that. We've been, uh, we've been, Pixelmator's been around since I believe 2007, if I'm not mistaken. So 13 really? years. The original Pixelmator, yes. So quickly, can you go through the four Pixelmator apps that exist now? Right. So exactly. So we started off with just the regular old Pixelmator, which was a, a, a layer based editor on the Mac. Um, and then we released Pixelmator for iOS, which is when the iPad came out. And that was demoed on the, on, on stage with one of the iPad releases. Um, and that was a companion app, a layer-based editor on the iPad. So again, it was most of the kind of, you know, I guess, Photoshop type, Photoshop style um, editing tools. Uh, and then we decided to, to work on this, you know, Pixelmator version 2 that we called Pixelmator Pro. And then, and then we released the Pixelmator Photo on the iPad, so the fourth app. Um, and that is just that app for photographers right it's just the photo development tools the repair tool um and it's this is just available on the ipad and it's very tightly integrated with the photos app so you use that for management and you edit your images with, with the pixelmator photo and then you save your edits back uh to your library and so we've kind of you know without building our own digital asset manager we've you know used the native tools as we love to do whenever we can to create this photo editing app. So part of what I find interesting about Pixelmator and specifically Pixelmator Pro, being saddled with an old code base, something you know that's 10 years old and wanting to start fresh. It was my impression that Pixelmator Pro was largely a ground up rewrite. It wasn't just, we're gonna add some more features to what we had before. The regular Pixelmator is still there, but Pixelmator Pro is going to be taking advantage of new technologies and new APIs and new capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of them being the thing that we're going to get into here, which is a lot of the the machine learning stuff, which I assume really sort of needed a brand new app to move forward on rather than trying to shoehorn it into old code. That's, yeah, I would say that's right. I mean, it's not just the machine learning stuff. It's it's a lot of, the, I, I, think, I think if you do ask, you know, almost every developer, like you know, after after developing an app for five, ten years, if, if you ask them what what would they would they like to rewrite the whole thing with all the things they've learned and all the new technologies yeah. available, most would say yes. I mean, even web devs would be like, oh man, I wish I could, because I mean, you know, I know someone say, I wish I could redo this right now because it's all like just held together in these various places. But even so, that's not always a great idea. And I mean, in general, rewriting an app is is a very risky thing to do. So, and we just we we decided 
at some point that it was worth it that we, we we could do something but even 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 then i mean after we released pixelmator pro uh you know it's been there's been two years of, of just uh patching things up that we you know maybe didn't think about uh for 1.0 which which uh which we never yeah just never considered that oh you know damn we need to get this working just this very specific way but also you have to catch up with mac os updates um, and, new yeah. versions of mac os definitely throw spanners into the works every every almost every year actually i think this year was one of the easiest uh so catalina really was it, was it catalina yeah i think catalina was one of the in terms of like developer like uh how much work we had to do just to just to fix you know all the new things it was one of the easier updates but every year it's 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 always something and and i mean this i don't know if anyone's interested but there's things like uh moving to metal right so mac was based on um a lot of the graphic stuff was based on OpenGL, and then now that's getting phased out and all our code and you know in in pixmeter the original was was based on OpenGL, but with but now i think as of next to the next version of mac os OpenGL is completely deprecated, so no code can be. So you have to rewrite all the graphic stuff. So I mean, and that happens. That's normal. That's fine. But there's an advantage that you're now able to take advantage of the GPU for better performance, right? Absolutely, yeah. Which yeah, you couldn't I mean, do before. And with the power of GPUs in modern Macs, that really makes a difference. Makes a huge difference, and you can you can create lots of things that that simply were not possible before. And that again, now coming back to the machine learning stuff, definitely without modern advances in GPUs and 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 Core ML. Uh, and the multi-GPU support and Core ML and stuff like that. The things that we've been able to add recently, like ML Super Resolution, just would not have been viable. Maybe possible, but, you know, like five minutes waiting for a single image, and that's that's not really, that's not viable. Yeah. Okay, before yeah. we get into more of the details, I do want to address the question of there not being a digital asset manager. And, you know, you hear some of your competitors, Affinity Photo, I believe it was in the 20th century that they announced that they were working on a digital asset manager, and they still haven't got one. Luminar finally did, but I think Jeff doesn't really like it a lot. It's um, very basic. Yeah. Are you planning on one? And do you need to? We aren't. Um, it's not. It's not. It wouldn't be a top priority. And I think the reason why you haven't seen anything from from, you know, a lot of companies that would like to is just it's it's actually a very very difficult undertaking much more so than for example a layer-based image editor uh because you know you've got well, quite a few of those image editors are easy any developer worth his job <laughs> yeah. roll one out in a weekend yeah just uh you know just, <laughs> again just we're not programmers no, <laughs> we're, we're just we're just you know being but yeah the, the reason why of course but the reason why we haven't and we don't really plan to is because our philosophy has always been when there's a native technology uh, that we can take advantage of and integrate with developed by Apple. Uh, we always want to do that. And I think photos, it, we definitely, there are things that we'd like to see. But for now, for example, with Pixmeter Photo on the iPad, the experience is pretty seamless, right? So you open up the app and you see your, fo- your photos library, you see your albums, you tap a photo to open it, you make your edits, tap done, and the changes along with all the non destructive edits are automatically linked to that photo saved and you'll also see the edited version in your photos library and yes i think so in that sense we feel the experience is definitely good enough for us not to even need to think about creating uh, a digital asset manager on the mac we'd love to see that same thing on the mac right like if if you could open up you know your your photos library in pixmator photo uh maybe even i don't know this is like a more of a utopian idea but you know rate your photos uh sort them in in the the ways people like to do so and then also save your edits on destructively. Again, on on the Mac, we have a different approach. We have the 
Pixelmator Pro editing extension. So you can open up an image in your, in your photos library, edit it with all the tools in Pixelmator Pro using extension, and again, save your changes non-destructively back to the library. So, I mean, we cover a lot of it. Yes. Yeah, that's brilliant on the Mac, and and there aren't a lot of apps that can do that. We're actually going to have Nick Bott on uh, in the future. He's the developer of Raw Power to to talk about how that works. Um, there are a few apps that do it, but most of them don't. Most of them hand off what they just hand off a JPEG to the photo editing app. So if you're working on a raw photo in Photos and you open an app as an editing extension, most times you just get a JPEG that you edit yeah, and then th- bring back, and you can't. And and these are destructive changes. Right. So the only way you can get back to your original is by exporting the original. And fo- it's really messy. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think what you get is the, probably the TIFF. Not if it's a raw, uh, which is kind of like a non, uh, which is a a losslessly compressed, maybe not even compressed. But, uh, so JPEG would be have, usually have some compression, but with the TIFF, the quality is higher and stuff. But I think yeah, with other photos, you open up the the sort of the processed version of the image. And and your changes are merged, so you lose them. You can't go back to fine tune them, and and yeah, we 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 love our approach, uh, and we think uh, it's it's really great. <laughs> so that's what I can say. <laughs> okay, let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk about machine learning because that sounds so cool. Okay, we've taken our break. We've drunk our tea and coffee. Machine learning. So one thing that you've been doing with Pixelmator Pro is in your minor updates, you've been adding some really powerful features. The one that blew me away is this ML super resolution, ML standing presumably for machine learning. Bingo. We'll put a link in the show notes to an article on my blog where I took a picture of one of my cats and I reduced the picture and then I put it into Pixelmator and I blew it back up and the results were really stunning. Obviously, if you put the two side by side and zoom in, you can see the original and the upscaled one in Pixelmator, but it's very, very subtle. Um, two questions. How do you do it? I want to take notes here. And <laughs> why, what's the whole machine learning thing? I mean, you've got little logos and buttons, ML, and we're hearing about machine learning everywhere. Do you tap into some like, um, archive of photos that Facebook has collected in order to see all the pictures of cats and know how they should scale. What goes on behind the scenes here? Okay, so I'm not a developer, but I've I've spent enough time uh, talking to our crazy scientists about this. Um, crazy scientists. Yeah, I mean they are they are crazy scientists, and I love them for it. Um, so I think I should be able to explain this quite hopefully quite well. So first of all, I think when people hear the term machine learning, they imagine machines autonomously kind of gaining knowledge without human input which is kind of what goes on but and i'm gonna and i'm gonna kind of make this seem a little bit less amazing than it is but it's basically really really vast statistical analysis that's made possible by the sort of uh improvements um to processing speed uh, on the latest, you know, computers and uh, you know GPUs and CPUs, and so basically the way it works is we get a bunch of photos. It doesn't even have to be all that many for certain things, um, and we take those, we re- re- reduce them, reduce their size to a certain, you know, a certain small size that we want to upscale to, and then the crazy maths and science happens where uh, we create this thing called a loss function. 
which measures the quality um, of the upscaled result that we automatically upscale each image. And then uh, using that, we can sort of fine tune the parameters in the algorithm that we create. And with just enough training um, and the right loss function, which is where the magic happens and where the crazy scientists earn their money, um, we, we, get, we get this algorithm which can make predictions on a, on a, on a pixel level about what each color of pixel should be. So with the basic algorithms, we've kind of explained this on our blog post, which you can maybe link to as well. Um, on a basic level, the algorithms like nearest neighbor will just copy one pixel uh, with any newly created pixel. It will take the nearest value, say it's like a red pixel. So the closest pixel that it has to add will just also be red. And that's why you get the classic blocks and you get the classic pixelated blocky appearance. Now with bilinear, which is like a slightly more fancy um, algorithm, it will try and guess what the intermediate values between, like, say, a dark red and a light red pixel should be. So a medium red. But once you upscale an image enough, you'll start to see those sort of uh, transitions and you get that kind of classic blurry appearance that everyone kind of is familiar with, I, I would guess. And then there are some slightly more advanced versions um, like uh, Lansosh, which is based on this like, mathematical formula where it tries to preserve edges, so it tries to kind of keep edges sharper, which does a better job in certain cases, but there's some trade-offs. And now with machine learning, what we do is we try to recognize in the image certain patterns, edges, um, textures, colors, gradients. And with each, this kind of intelligent algorithm does a pass over the image and tries to identify layers and layers um, of various features in the image. They're called features like gradients, um, edges, and so on. And it builds up into this like 100-channel deep representation. I'm getting quite... <laughs> taking a while to get to the point here. But it builds up a 100-channel deep representation of that uh, image with all these individual features and then upscales that. So once you put all that together, uh, the edges and, and all the kind of details remain sharp. Obviously, it requires pretty crazy amounts of processing power, like 60,000 times more than the usual um, algorithms. But that's kind of machine learning. So we, as long as we have a data set that we can, and then we train the data set and train all the parameters by just seeing how close each sort of type of parameter gets to uh, the target image. And when you're doing that training, is that training happening on each person's Mac? Is it specific no. to each person? Or is this a massive database that you collect? We actually have uh, our own sort of servers that we use for training. So once once you have once you and this is actually so you another, just run a bunch of bots on your servers to train right, them for photos. Yes, yes, and the interesting thing is, once you decide to make a change, it can it can take you a couple of days, you know, two or three days to actually get the results from you. Like, okay, so I think if we make a change to these sort of parameters to this formula here and here, you know, it might be better. Okay, let's do that, and now let's wait three days to see what happens. Because you have so many photos. Because we have so many photos, and because it has to, you know, do all the passes of each thing, and then right. and test the, you know, and slightly adjust the parameters each time, and see, okay, is it getting closer? Is it not getting closer? Okay, we'll leave that parameter as it is, and then using all that, it makes these neural connections in the network that doesn't really don't really make sense to people if you look at it, but it works. It sounds all Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I love it. So the, there's a lot of machine learning out there that relies on uh, a lot of processing in the cloud. But as I understand it, when you're using ML super resolution, all of that processing is just happening locally on your computer. It's not uploading Absolutely. your image. It's not uh, you know sharing that out. It, it, it's just crunching all the numbers locally. 
Right. So yeah, and once you train that um, algorithm, you can turn that into a machine learning model, uh, which is completely uh, isolated. I guess you know, it's it's just it's a, it's a thing. It's a it's a piece of code essentially, a block of code, a big one. Well, actually, relatively speaking, I think ML super resolution right now is about five megabytes in size. Um, whereas we're actually working on some improvements to it that's going to, are going to come out hopefully in the, in the coming weeks um, that will increase the size of the of the model to about seven megabytes. It's not really huge, but that doesn't seem huge at all. No, yeah, no. So um, what I had initially thought is that you go through millions of cat photos um, to be able to make it so my cat photo looks better when the size changes. But it's really not that. It's really just local pixels and relationships between pixels. In which we, case, you don't need to have a huge database of photos. It depends I mean, on the you feature. Do for your, you do for your testing and for, for optimizing your algorithm, but you don't need to have a million photos of people on the beach to be able to use your ML enhance feature of photos for photos of people on the beach. Actually, this is interesting because it really depends on the feature. For certain things, uh, the data set, is, well, always the data set is, is, is one of the most important things. Having a high quality data set um, is, is very important, but the number of photos varies. So actually for our ML enhanced feature, which is the automatic you know, enhancement, um, that you, the magic wand tool that you might find in, in other, other apps, for that one, we actually had to get about 20 million photos, I think. Wow, because because uh, because in in that in that in that uh, particular for that particular tool, it's very important to have a very very wide data set because it has to get the white balance right and lighting and stuff. But for this one, I don't want to, I can't remember exactly how many how many photos we use, but it's in the thousands, right? That's so, not a lot, right? So it's not it's not too much, maybe a bit more than that. that but, that's uh, that's my photos library. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so where does one get? Yeah, where do you get these photos? Of, do you just of, pull of them photos. down from I mean, Flickr? Yeah, publicly well, available. So uh, like places like okay. Splash and stuff. So yeah, and then and then we just uh, we just we use those. Uh, but so for example, with ML Super Resolution, uh, yeah, it's it's once once you have that once you've trained the model, it doesn't really have any information about photos. It, it literally just has this knowledge in the in the in the form of neural connections in the network, um, which sounds really awesome as well. Um, uh, and yeah, and then, but uh, other apps, uh, other services will provide this, uh, you know, by like online because they don't have any kind of, you know, desktop apps for it. And they want to charge like, I mean, there are, I've seen things for like where they charge certain monthly amounts and where you upload them online, which I mean, it's not, it's not a great feeling to do that. So yeah. it's much nicer just to, to just stick it on an app on your, on your desktop and, uh, have it do all the magic on your hard drive. Well, on your GPU. That's one of the things I think is interesting about Adobe's approach is they have everybody who subscribes to uh, their their Lightroom plan. If it's uploading the images, Adobe basically is using everyone's image as the the data source to build their al- algorithms. Everything is randomized. Everything is is anonymized, but they have just probably millions of images that they can that they can work on. Uh, but the other side of that is if you want to take advantage of any of these features, it has to go up to the cloud. Like you can't do anything locally. If your machine's not connected to the internet, you can't use any of those features. So all the processing is done in the cloud. And what I like about um, the way you're doing it and the way Apple has done it too is it's all being locally processed and you're getting the advantages without having to – 
hit the cloud every time. Yeah, it's just a much nicer kind of uh, experience. You know, I, I, I would agree. I, I much prefer that as well. Yeah, a number of your features have little ML buttons, like in Apple Photos, the auto buttons, and other ones have similar AI, I think is what Luminar says. Um, you've got lightness, white balance, color balance, but you don't have black and white. How come you don't have an auto black and white conversion yet? Uh, I just not something that we've we've trained uh, any algorithms on. It's just really just I guess a matter of um, priorities. Well, you uh, should get to it. Black and white photography. <laughs> I think, I think, I, Black I'll, and white is real photography. Absolutely, no, I think I think it'd be I think it'd be great. But there's a you know I mean I think uh, what we've what we've done so far. So we started off with the auto enhance feature, right? That was that was like the first step. first stuff we released uh, the white balance feature. And if you've had a chance, any photographers had a chance to try it out, I think. Uh, most will say that it's more accurate than 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 any other auto button out there. I would I would uh, you know that's the feedback I've heard, <laughs> and and that's what we've also tested. So I think that's uh, something we worked on quite hard. But it's it's quite it's not something the auto white balance isn't something that uh, regular people would sort of pay attention to. It's really more for photographers. And then the ML enhance came from that because once you have once you can fix the white balance of an image reliably, you can create a really good automatic enhancement tool because. You know, it won't take a, a badly balanced, you know, yellow cast photo and saturate that, right? It'll fix it. And it'll, so we think that's really great. And then we moved on to uh, MLD Noise. That was our, uh, you know, probably our second main machine learning core ML powered uh, tool in, in, in Pixelmator Pro, which removes image noise, but we're still working to, uh, still working on that as well, improving it up the top. And then, and also resolution actually came uh, as a result uh, of of our work on ML denoise because uh, when you upscale um, a photo, you have to ignore all the noise and stuff, so that doesn't you know you get big blobs of noise. Um, so and, one feature builds on another feature as right. you go forward. Yeah, yeah, and then and that's so. You know, maybe maybe a, a, a auto black and white machine learning powered auto black and white. I mean, I can totally see it working, um, and we could do it. But it's just that the the progression as it's come so far has led us to this point. We'll look for that in the next next <laughs> version because of this conversation. So <laughs> yes, I so want one question credit. that I have. I want credit someplace in the about box or something. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There but we black, go. <laughs> black and white is important, and it's true that um, you you I, I particularly like Apple's black and white tool in the Photos app, where you have a slider with the little thumbnails instead of the the five sliders that you have. Because for most people, that's a lot more intuitive than thinking which color channel do I want to make darker or lighter. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. I, th I think uh, I think in, in this particular case that would be great. I think uh, I can imagine again us getting to it and doing something like that. For now, we, we use the kind of classic approach, but I think a more intuitive one slide away would be would be awesome. Maybe with the option to you know for people who like to who know what they're doing with channels. Yeah, yeah. So one question that I have, um, and this kind of backs up a little bit, but. Um, there aren't many developers out there that are really taking advantage of machine learning yet. Um, you know, I, like I think Pixelmator, I think Luminar, and then to certain degrees, uh, Adobe in little spots, Apple in little spots. And part of my question is like, why? It seems to have a lot of advantages. Is it particularly more difficult 
than, say, implementing a better white balance control that doesn't use machine learning? Like, why has Pixelmator really jumped into machine learning? I mean, we have talked about machine learning as really being the future of photography. But getting down to the implementation level, what about it really drew Pixelmator to implement that? You could probably say it all started with the repair tool that we did that isn't strictly Core ML powered, but our, our object removal tool uses um, some some neural network inspired technologies in its training. So what I was mentioning about like you know uh, checking for quality yeah. and, and the loss function, something I think it's something similar that's used to train the repair tool, which is you could probably say it's the most successful uh, you know single tool in the app that we've <laughs> in terms of getting getting us featured in places and just you know pe- wowing people. So the object removal tool, the repair tool, that would be it. Um, and since we started on that, um, you know, we've had we've had people working on on machine learning uh, and this AI stuff, and that's that's why we were drawn to it to an extent because I guess the the early huge successes with it, um, and obviously CoreML came out, and we always love to try just any sort of new Apple technologies, see what we can do with it, and we and we had some really great ideas about how we can use it because I think again our auto enhancement tool. Um, that is machine learning, fully coronal powered, is great. I think com- compared to what you get in a lot of other apps, I think it does an amazing job. Uh, it's very, it's quite subtle as well, which is which maybe takes away from it. Maybe it's too detriment sometimes. But it's it's we, we with each of these tools, we try and uh, preserve the quality of the photo, the look of the photo as much as possible, and just do what a natural, what what a human would do, what would look natural. Um, so yeah, that's uh, I guess that's that's kind of an intro to that. As for why uh, why other companies aren't doing this, I think to an extent it is about difficulty. Uh, I think to some extent with Apple, maybe it's a marketing thing. I think with uh, you know their stuff that they're doing, the deep fusion stuff, I guess they're not saying as loudly, you know, it's machine learning, yeah. uh, but they use it for certain things. Um, but I think yeah, I think to, I think there is a very some very exciting things that you can that you can do with machine learning. Again, super resolution being one of them that's very kind of visibly obvious where you just create quality out of almost nothing, you could say. I mean, what was, that wasn't possible before. We've talked in the past about how computational photography is becoming the big deal in photography, that when you take a photo with an iPhone, um, you're not just taking a photo. You're taking a photo that's doing 12 trillion operations and different photos and slices and all that. And we didn't really see that on the desktop in the same way, but it looks to me now that with this sort of machine learning AI based stuff, we're going into that same idea of computational photography, just sort of ex post facto that you've taken your picture and then you do the computational stuff afterwards instead of when you're shooting it. I had a job for a short time, I think it was 19 years old, and I worked as a courier um, for a company that did retouching of Cibachrome prints for the fashion industry. And I would watch these people with these little brushes and these little colors, and it was all manual, it was all analog. And we've gotten to the point now where I've just got a photo up in a Pixelmator. I took a photo of the church that's around the corner from where I live. And it's this wonderful old church, but there's this big like barrel for water in the middle of the photo. I took your repair tool, boom, it's gone, poof. But yeah. it was never there. And with all of this machine learning stuff, auto enhance and everything, it's almost as if we've gotten to a point where the computer is the photograph. I think I would agree to that uh, with that to an extent. But I, I think machine learning is always going to take care of the kind of 
menial tasks the most, right? So getting the white balance right, I mean, yeah, there's, there's some creative artistic element to it. Um, or removing objects, of course, maybe there is there is, a, there is an element to how you mask them in using other objects. But I think for the most part, the creative part is taking the photograph uh, and applying your, you know, your vision to it in terms of the, the color edits. But there are some menial things that kind of are a bit annoying, right? So removing objects are just in white balance and stuff. Well, like but that. when you click on ML enhance, for most people um, who aren't really photographers, I'm doing the air quotes, all they need to do is take a photo, click on ML enhance, and it's going to look better. It doesn't matter. And I'm not talking about fixing composition. You're not going to auto crop photos unless you decide <laughs> to have an algorithm to auto crop portraits in a certain way. We actually have that in Pixelmator Photo and ML Crop algorithm. <laughs> really? Yes. Okay. I, <laughs> on the iPad. On the iPad. On the iPad. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my, my point is that there's so much now that anyone can take a picture and there's so much behind it that can improve that picture to the point where you would have had to read three years of a photo magazine with Photoshop tutorials to get that 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think, I think that's great. I think, I think that kind of reflects the kind of democratizing of lots of, lots of things uh, in the world with where knowledge is more easily accessible and and even you know even even tools as well are much more readily available but i think uh, i think that just empowers people even more that will inspire them to look into this stuff and not be put off by maybe the technical stuff because they can see that they can just do it with a click and now they just want to understand it rather than maybe so yeah i, th- I think it's uh, i think i think it's a pretty cool thing and i but i would agree with you that that that's that is happening definitely Andreas, thank you very much for joining us. I strongly recommend that anyone who hasn't tried Pixelmator Pro for the Mac, go to the Pixelmator website. You can download a demo, can't you? Completely free trial, no registration required, no emails, 15 days, use it for free. Even though it's only sold in the Mac App Store, you do provide a demo. Absolutely. Um, So it's worth trying. Drop some photos in, use the ML Enhance, and I think you'll really find this to be a really powerful tool. Unless, of course, you're like Jeff, wedded to the Adobe Industrial Complex. <laughs> we'll get I am wedded to any tool that needs to get the job done. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Andreas, thank you very much for taking time today. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So before we get to our snapshots, I just want to let everyone know that we have five promo codes for Pixelmator Pro to give away to people who subscribe to our newsletter. And Jeff's going to tell you how to subscribe to our newsletter. You're going to go to photoactive.co, which is our uh, website where you'll find all of our show notes and archive of episodes. At the bottom of every page, there's a little sign-up form to subscribe to our newsletter. We pretty much use it only for doing giveaways and to announce new episodes. And we've done lots of giveaways, so we've done lots if you of giveaways. subscribe to our newsletter, you will be entered into all future giveaways. We just gave away two copies of Harold Davis's Creative Black and White book. Okay, Jeff, snapshots. I hope you have something interesting this week. I do have something interesting. Um, it has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. For someone who's doing photo shoots, uh, as I do occasionally... Uh, sometimes you need a reflector, and I believe we've talked about reflectors in the past. I just picked up a new reflector, and it is a newer 24-inch collapsible triangle multi-camera lighting reflector. And the difference between this is most reflectors are just circles, and that's great if you have somebody who can stand there and hold it. The triangular ones have a little hand grip on one of the corners, and what that allows you to do is... You can basically hold your camera in one hand, hold the reflector in another if you are shooting 
say, uh, someone's portrait solo, or maybe you're doing some macro work and you don't have either something to hold it against or you don't have a person that can hold uh, a reflector for you, it's just really handy. Uh, it folds up flat um, into a small little little circular bag, and it was $16. Circular reflectors are really practical, but I had to look at a YouTube video to figure out how to fold it up to get it into yes. the bag. The big ones, especially. I, I have like a large backdrop and I had to bookmark a YouTube video because I kept forgetting how to do it. <laughs> Once you figure it out, though, it makes sense. And also, pro tip, especially when you buy a brand new reflector, uh, when you open it, don't put your face too close to it because it will pop out and hit you in the face. I'm not saying that I know this through experience, except that I know this through experience. Yeah, Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, my um, snapshot is something that I don't own and probably never will. Can you guess what it is? Uh, a dog? No. <laughs> Good point, though. I'm never going to get a dog. Leica announced the new M10 monochrome camera. And as I've mentioned in the past, this is the camera I lust after, the Leica M monochrome. But what they've done with the M10 is really, it, it's a huge jump. So the previous model had a 24 megapixel um, sensor, and the new one has a 40 megapixel sensor. In addition, the sensor is very different. In the past, what they did is they took existing sensors and they kind of peeled off the color filters that were on top of them. But here they've developed, now I don't know if they've developed their own sensor or someone else has developed it for Leica, but these filters don't need to be peeled off. It's a native monochrome sensor. Oh, I won't go too much into it. I'm going to link to an article that I put on my website that particularly links to a very detailed review and a very good YouTube video um, that explains what's so special about this kind of sensor. If you listen to the show regularly, you know I like black and white. But what I really noticed in the sample raw images that I found and then the sample JPEGs that Leica is distributing, um, this really has more of a filmic look than in the past, kind of like Tri-X Pan. Um, it's beautiful, but it's 7,250 pounds. I think it's $8,750 US. And unless there's a wealthy person listening to this show who's going to buy it for me, I don't think I'm ever going to own one as much <laughs> as I would. This would be like a midlife crisis camera, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hey, you know what? That's much better than buying a sports car. It is. Although um, you can actually get a car for this price. But to see, the problem is wow. you get that's just the camera. Not you've a midlife crisis car. No, but then you've got to <laughs> buy the lenses afterward. Yeah. Um, so just for a decent 50 millimeter lens, you're talking another 2,000 pounds. Um, essentially 10,000 pounds or $12,000-ish for the camera and a decent enough lens. We can dream, can't we? We can absolutely dream. Okay. Well, that's enough for this week. I will not have a, like, a monochrome for our next episode. I will not have a dog either. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app. 